0: Welcome to the Siskins Business Essentials Podcast, where I sit down with lawyers from Siskins Business Division to discuss current issues, challenges, and opportunities affecting our clients. My name is Chris Sinal, and I'm a labor and employment lawyer practicing primarily in arbitrations, occupational health and safety, WSIB, and human rights law with clients in the manufacturing, broader public sector, and healthcare sectors. And today I'm sitting down and talking with Vivian Iron, a lawyer working in Siskins Business Division. Vivian, why don't we start by uh, just telling me a bit about your practice. What, uh, what are you doing with
1: clients? Sure. Firstly, thank you, Chris, for having me uh, as part of your podcast series. Honored to be here. Jeez. Oh, um, <laughs> definitely cut go, that out. Go, go on. <laughs> um, I am a corporate lawyer, so I deal with all things business law related, right? For example, um, I help businesses get incorporated and organized. I draft and negotiate contracts, I corporate organizations for estate planning, and I help our clients buy and sell companies through asset or share transactions.
0: So really it's kind of the, the entire package.
1: Really? Yeah. All things business related.
0: And, and so, you know, generally speaking, if you look at your, at your practice, you know, a lot of the things that you talked about seem to be transactional, right? So, I mean, you're doing a corporate transaction, you're doing a sale is is it all that kind of transactional stuff or is there ongoing maintenance that's happening? Is it like, how involved are you in the day-to-day operations of corp?
1: Well, yeah, as you can probably imagine, I see my clients with like a wide variety of matters, right? So for some, it'll be, hey, Vivian, can you review this one-off agreement for me? Or hey, prepare these security agreements for me so that we can register and enforce a lien again a debtor? And then we have, you know, once those one-off matters are finalized, I may not hear from those clients again So the next issue or question comes up months later, Um, and then I have another set of clients who are constantly starting ventures or acquiring other businesses, et cetera. So those clients are more inclined to connect with me on a more consistent basis. So really it it is across the board.
0: Serial entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So nowadays we're, I mean, the entire point of of this series is talking about this extraordinary situation that we're in where we've got. Uh, government intervention all over the place. Um, obviously, it's affected, you know, my practice and my clients quite a bit because a lot of my clients don't have employees at work right now. What sort of a change, or are you seeing a change, in the types of questions and issues that your clients are having right now?
1: Um, if we're talking issues, one issue that I see recurring recently is the fact that unfortunately a lot of our small business clients can't afford to pay their rent due to mandated closures. And not only that, but there's uncertainty as to whether you know, their business or their landlord will qualify for the emergency commercial rent program. And that's frankly causing quite a bit of stress amongst our business owner clients. So what are they doing? Well, they're calling us for advice. But the problem is, since the announcement of the program was made, um, they haven't, fi- you know, the government hasn't finalized the eligibility criteria for the program yet. They haven't published it. So we can't give our clients a definitive response right now on those questions. And to add another layer of complexity, even if parties do qualify for the program, what if the program isn't mandatory for landlords, and then the landlord chooses not to apply for whatever reason? In that case, there might not actually be very much that the small business owner slash tenant do. So yeah, even though the program does sound pretty amazing, it's it's going to lower rent by 75% for small businesses that have been affected by COVID, we have to see the yet to be announced details in order to give clear answers to the client.
0: Mm -hmm. I know some people look at that particular program as an example, and you just flagged it. You know where where maybe the the government's solution isn't exactly what people you know really practically needed. Have we seen any examples of steps the government has taken, orders they've issued, changes they've made that that actually have really helped your business clients in the operation of their of their enterprise?
1: Well, in late March, in response to the province's declaration of emergency, the Ontario government did issue uh, an emergency order to provide Ontario corporations some temporary flexibility and relief from the strict uh, director and shareholder meeting requirements that are mandated by the Corporations Act and the Business Corporations Act. And then last month in April, an amendment to that order was issued to provide co-op and condo corps with the same flexibilities as well.
0: So what sorts of requirements are there?
1: Actually, I won't go into too much detail right now, but if you, <laughs> there are a lot of requirements. But if you are interested, you can read my blogs on this topic on the website. Okay. I will go through quickly what the emergency order and the amendment allow for. Uh, they allow for these corporations to meet virtually, uh, whether via telecom- teleconference or other electronic means, even if their articles, or bylaws, or shareholder agreements don't allow for this. So that's interesting. And the order also extends meeting date deadlines to time periods that are after Ontario's declared state of emergency is over. So that gives all these corporations a little bit of time and flexibility in order to meet their meeting obligation.
0: So not that I want you to give legal advice on a podcast, but where a corporation's bylaws or what have you are silent on something. So you know if if it just doesn't even contemplate virtual meetings, Before these orders were put into effect, is it just assumed that you aren't allowed to do them?
1: No, because then the statute will provide for it.
0: Okay. Does the statute outside of the order allow you to do virtual
1: meetings? For some types of organizations, yes.
0: Oh, interesting. What do you think the odds are that the type of flexibility that's been injected to deal with this acute issue is actually going to stick around?
1: So you mean, instead of it being temporary, that it be a permanent type of flexibility and relief?
0: Yeah. Do you think there's any chance that that'll happen?
1: I mean, I feel like a lot of um, organizations now are relooking at their bylaws and their articles and probably preparing revised drafts of them to allow for types of electronic meetings as well. So whether or not it's provided by statute, I think that organizations are looking at revising their shareholder agreements and bylaws in order to allow for for these types of virtual meetings.
0: I mean, I know one of the big things... um, at least my impression, right? When when there's a big transaction happening, you've got a big sale, you know, all, all of, there's there's literally four trees of paper that are laid out on a conference room table and everyone comes in for their signing and, and, and does it just to, to end the deal. What's happening now?
1: We are using programs like DocuSign now to push out the execution pages to our clients, and we're finding that that's quite effective. Uh,
0: Is there any difference legally between something that's docu-signed and something where I actually grab my pen and do it personally?
1: I think um, some of the issues are around if I have to swear a a declaration in front of a lawyer. So right now we're doing that via video conference as well.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Hmm. And do you find that that's more effective than, than the way you used to do it? Or does it really not matter?
1: Personally, I'm a face-to-face person. I really do enjoy the client meetings face-to-face and, um, you know, paper or not, I I just prefer the, the personal contact, the personal aspect of it, but I am also an environmentalist. So I do prefer the non-paper aspect of the DocuSign signatures. Um, so I think
0: you don't like the pulp and paper industry
1: <laughs> Not that I don't like the pulp and paper industry but I feel like like you said mounds and mounds of paper that's a bit excessive when you know we need to make four copies of all the agreements of purchase and sales and all the closing documents it's 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 a bit excessive
0: I mean, there's something to be said for, for after all of the work that goes into a transaction, getting everyone you know, into the same place at the same time to be able to finally close it out. So I can certainly see the appeal to that. But I mean, if you can easily just pressing out to all of these people that might be located who knows where and just get them to sign it out, um, I have to imagine that that's you know, probably easier and cheaper for the clients too.
1: Absolutely much more convenient for
0: everyone involved. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any long-term changes from that, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think we were moving that way anyway. I think a lot of corporations are moving towards digital signatures uh, before COVID happened. But I think because of the pandemic, we've kind of been forced to push it out faster than we would have done. So,
0: What are you seeing from your, I call them serial entrepreneurs, that that we're looking at new ventures? Has has that essentially just frozen? Or... Are they just just proceeding along? I mean, what's the market like for that right now?
1: Surprisingly, we are still incorporating a lot of business days. And you know, in terms of st- structuring acquisition deals, one issue that comes to mind immediately is that it's actually one that will probably be best figured out by business accountants: is how the business is going to be evaluated, right? If clients are looking to buy or sell a company, i.e., how much is this company worth? What are the new, realistic, sustainable profit levels during and after, in the aftermath of the pandemic?
0: So if you had a client approach you right now that said, listen, you know, I've been thinking about potentially selling my business, uh, putting it out there. At a high level, would you say, you know, maybe now is not the best time or the reasons why this is a seller's market? I mean, what sort of general suggestions would you have for someone that's even entertaining that idea right now?
1: Well, yeah, we do have a quite a few clients who see this as an opportunity to buy because there are there may be less competition in the market right I think that possibly including earnout provisions in the purchase and sale agreement could be one way to certain revenue and profitability and I could definitely see these types of provisions being more and more profitable in near future.
0: Tell me what an earnout provision is.
1: So in the event that you're unfamiliar with the term, an earnout provision actually allows for the seller of a business to receive a certain amount of the price on closing. And then the remaining or additional amounts are paid to the seller based on the future performance of the company. So, depending on how long it takes for the economy and the business itself to rebound, clients may be looking to delay the earnout calculation for, I don't know, 12 to 18 months post closing or longer. Are
0: earnout provisions like that? I mean, is there any sort of situation where they tend to be used more than others? Like, I'm imagining, you know, if I've got a key person that was instrumental to the business's success, and they're selling it, I might want them to stick around for a couple of years, or at least sort of refrain from undermining the company while I try and make sure that its legs are stable. So, I imagine I'd be eyeballing an earnout provision for something like that.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's it's used in conjunction with a lot of um, retention, like when you're retaining a key person in the um, in the business for definitive period of time after the business is sold also in conjunction with you know non-competition agreements.
0: Mm-hmm. It makes sense to to begin relying increasingly on uh, on those to- types of earnout provisions as an insurance depending on uh, you know whether the valuation was reliable and how the economy is doing long-term, particularly because it's kind of hard to project that out, given that we've never been through this before. But I'd be curious to know if, if we saw something similar back a few years ago during the, during the last financial crisis. I, I have no idea, but I, um, it would be interesting.
1: Yeah, I would. You know, as well. Yeah,
0: sure. Hmm. When you look at how your clients have had to pivot their operations, change the way they do business, can you see any other longer-term changes? Being necessary uh, for their continued operation in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, that you're going to have to help them
1: with. I mean, I guess on a more practical, everyday level, they're going to need to comply with, you know, the provincial sector-specific guidelines that were issued late last week when they reopen. You know, the more general ones like keeping up with e requirements, social distancing rules, um, especially indoors, is going to be pretty challenging for businesses. Um, especially if businesses see operating at near capacity in order to be profitable, I'm I'm restaurants and bars, right?
0: Yeah, 100. It, it. I mean, some of these are going to be easier to to comply with fully than others. I mean, I'm thinking of the sector specific guidelines for the construction sector. Uh, the ministry produced posters both for employees and for employers, and the employer poster consisted of a pictogram with a park bench and a tree on it that said hold meetings outside. And that was the entire thing. (laughs) Wow. Whereas, yeah, right. Whereas, you know, if you're operating a restaurant and all of a sudden the number of people that you're allowed to have in there at a given time is, is cut by half, your margins are non-existent anyway. And now you've just cut out half of your opportunity for profit. So there's a, there's a lot of question, right. You know, about how that business is, is going to have to either pivot to be able to operate whether there's gonna be some sort of government assistance, no idea at all.
1: For sure. And the one I'm thinking about that's pretty extreme is the hotels and hospitality and tourism industry, where they have to, you know, eliminate non-essential tasks like hotel valet services or face-to-face meetings. They have to replace guest buffets with packaged food stations and you know housekeepers have to clean and disinfect hampers and other carts, right? So these are I, I would say pretty pretty extreme ways to to have to You know,
0: redesign their operation, and it's interesting because the government's policy choice seems to be, when it comes to employees, which obviously there's a lot more employees in Canada than there are companies, is to direct fund employees to the greatest extent possible, even if the government's sort of funneling that through wages through its wage subsidy program. But then, when it comes to business operations, funnel it through the banks, and enable the banks to actually release the money through. You know, favorable loan provisions and what have you. So, given that the government's relying so heavily on banks to get that money out to businesses, are you seeing a take-up from your clients?
1: I'm actually doing quite a bit of financing right now, so uh, quite a few financing transactions because a lot of our clients are seeing it as a good time to to borrow from the banks, right, due to the low interest rate. And those are actually going quite well. Like they're a little bit slower than normal because of the backlog, but those are those types of transactions are working yeah, along quite well.
0: You know, even though everyone's talking about a, a vaccine, let's say 12, 18 months and then, you know, we'll start getting into some semblance of normality maybe after that. Um, you know, that's too many business cycles. And so presumably there's going to have to be a pivot across the board for how people are operating just into some element of of uh of a revised operating procedure in the next three, six, nine months. And then, um, you know, I think a lot of clients are gonna say, do I really wanna shift back again? Or do I wanna sort of stay closer to whatever this new operating procedure is? I mean, it's gonna depend on a case by case basis what the actual changes are, right?
1: Exactly. So I guess I will conclude by saying that, in my very humble opinion, The most important thing right now is to focus on making sure we continue to flatten that curve. You know, Whether you're a business owner, a landlord, employer, or employee, it's really a time for passion and collaboration. We really are in this together.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Vivian.
1: Thanks, Chris. Stay healthy.
0: So thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to check out Siskins' website at www.siskins.com or Siskins' presence on social media at Siskins underscore LLP. And so thanks again for listening while Vivian Iron and I talk about uh, the business essentials related to corporate law
1: during COVID-19.